One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Karen Pugliese, managing editor of Investigative at CBC. They let you come on the show even though you're at the CBC. (laughs) Um, we, we talked about it, and uh, they decided that it was quite okay to do. I was afraid we'd lost you forever. This comes with a caveat. I am not speaking on behalf of CBC. Well, I've got a long list of comments they never responded to, so thank God we have you here to represent <laughs> the official CBC position. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Karen, where we talk shit about the news. <laughs> thank you for putting my job in jeopardy. <laughs> Today on the show, Truth and Reconciliation and Relaxation Day. Did the Canadian media fail by exposing the Prime Minister's beachfront getaway? Don't answer yet. And, well, it's better than nothing, but not much better. What this country's news organizations, including Canada Land, are doing about the targeted harassment of racialized female journalists. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Alex Wood, Susan Walsh, Chantelle Amel Bouchard, Heather Hardy, Emily Bedners, Rod Anderson, Rob Garisto, and Tommy Solo. Hi there, I'm Tommy Solo in London, Ontario. I'm a singer-songwriter and the host of Tommy Solo's Famous Friends podcast, and I support Canada Land for their critical view on mainstream media and also for duly noting news that is often ignored and downplayed by the mainstream corporate-owned media in Canada and North America. And I just have to ask Jesse, as a legacy musician myself, what do you have against Randy Bachman, dude? 
So, Karen, a lot of people were very angry last week and into the weekend. There were like over 15,000 tweets. Top trending topic in Canada. Canadian media failed. How did they fail? Usually I'm all aboard. Canadian media failed? Yeah. You, you can tell me the details later. I'm with you. They failed. How did Canadian media fail? Well, according to a lot of people, the Canadian media failed by playing gotcha, rudely harassing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau while he was with his family on the beach in Tofino, British Columbia, on the first ever Truth and Reconciliation Day. Dr. Norlane Thomas tweeted, things are coming apart. We have had a respectful journalistic tradition in Canada for a very long time. Family was off limits. That differentiated us from many countries. Our journalists took pride in their ethics. No longer, it seems. And the general critique was that, you know, this is Global News BC, that they hijacked Truth and Reconciliation Day. They took the focus off of the solemn remembrance and actually discussing Indigenous issues. And Global News just turned it into a partisan shit-flinging event. And this should have been something else. And frankly, the media owes Indigenous people an apology for the disrespect that the media has shown. Now, Karen... Mm -hmm. I understand that technically you don't speak for all Indigenous people. <laughs> I do not. Not yet. Not yet. But you speak for at least one. Does the Canadian media owe you an apology for reporting on Justin Trudeau's beach vacation? Um, no. I mean, I. Uh, who cares about if they owe me an apology? L listen, I'm a journalist, right? Um, this is about the survivors. And so what I saw is that there was a news story and media went out and covered the news story and then got feedback from various Indigenous leaders, none of whom I saw express that it wasn't a story. Some of them had different feelings about what happened. Some of them were very angry, but nobody said that it, was a, it wasn't a story. You know, and it was interesting because you know this. Do you remember, I think it was 2016, when Vice got an exclusive with the Prime Minister going to Show Lake First Nation, Show Lake 40? Yes, I do. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. And um, I had a conversation with the Prime Minister's office at the time about why access was being limited. And we decided to send a reporter anyway. So um, I sent uh, poor Dennis Ford <laughs> and it became a big I, thing. I, th I think we should, sorry to interrupt, but I think that it's pretty relevant that this was like, Vice was there and APTN, Aboriginal People's Television, was not. Uh, that was the access question. Yeah, they had decided between Vice and uh, the PMO's office that this would be an exclusive. And I wasn't sure exactly who had made the deal or who was telling us not to go when I said, let's go down. And uh, yeah, Dennis was escorted out of the First Nation because they had decided to make it exclusive, which is fine. But we sent the camera anyway. And, you know, it's just these judgment calls on whether or not you send a camera always have a lot of discussion around them. So in this case, we're talking about global sending a camera out to cover the prime minister's personal vacation um, on a day where there's sort of a feeling that he should have been participating in ceremonies and the day. Fair question. Should they have sent a camera? What typically happens in newsrooms, not in yours, 
and not in the one that I used to run at APTN, where we have a lot of control in making an individual decision, right? And uh, APTN had a journalism policy, but essentially I was the final word on that policy, so I could just say go. In other newsrooms, there's more debate about it and there's more people involved because they're bigger places. But essentially, this is always a question that has debate inside a newsroom. I don't know what happened inside Global's newsroom, but I'm sure there was a lot of debate about it. I think it's similar about to when an MP um, has an affair. Do you cover it? Well, what's the news in it? Maybe there's news if they've been campaigning on family values. Maybe there's news if they're trying to change a law that's pertinent to their own situation. But generally, it's kind of felt that it's not covered. And different newsrooms are going to consult their JSPs and come up with different decisions. If it had been me at APTN and I had a thought of it, I probably would have sent a camera. It's very uh, moderate and thoughtful of you to present this as like something that would even cause like a moment's hesitation. Like, I speak for no indigenous people. I will speak for me. Are you fucking kidding me that this is like some evidence of media failure? It's newsworthy on, on a couple of levels. First of all, he lied. The, the PMO website said that Trudeau was in private meetings. Okay, so it doesn't even matter what the occasion is. If the prime minister of Canada has misrepresented what he's doing, that is obviously of public interest. Now, the fact that it was on the first ever Truth and Reconciliation Day, are you fucking kidding me? I don't even want to act outraged because this is just consistent with the arrogance and not just that, the stupidity, like how badly he misreads every situation. But it's like the German chancellor on the first ever Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day going skiing or something. Like the bar is so low and it's set to symbolic gestures and he couldn't even get the symbolic gesture right. But who cares what I think? You know who thinks that Justin Trudeau did something wrong? Justin Trudeau. It was a mistake to travel on that day. Um, This is an important moment for Canada and for Canadians to reflect not just on the past, but on the present. I think the how it happened is far less important than that it happened, uh, which I regret. And we will continue uh, to do even more on the path of reconciliation. So all of these people on Twitter, all of these liberal partisan Twitter accounts were like so passionately sure that Trudeau had done nothing wrong and this was all a media fail. Supposedly standing up for indigenous communities and saying, oh, this should have been about survivors. Well, did you bother to ask or look at what has been said by indigenous leaders? Like, there's no question that this was newsworthy to Kamloops chief Roseanne Casimir. I did hold out on hope that maybe that he would be here. We have sent him two invitations. There was actually a march eight minutes away from where he was in Tofino that he could have gone to. Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs said, You know, it represents a slap in the face to families of residential school uh, uh, victims. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald also said, When you go on a holiday uh, on that particular day, it's very hurtful for survivors and intergenerational trauma survivors. It seems to be pretty much unanimous and obvious I mean, and it's so it's so ugly to me that these Trudeau supporters on Twitter, it's almost as if like, would you lecture Cindy Blackstock on the proper way to celebrate or honor Truth and Reconciliation Day? Oh, wait, they actually did that. No, they actually did that. There was Cindy Blackstock also decried the prime minister. And there were like white dudes on Twitter telling her that she had it wrong. 
it boggles the mind. I mean, what the prime minister does or doesn't do, I'm, I'm not here to advise him. I'm not in his employ, right? But if the question is, was it a story? Yes. And I'll also point out that Indigenous media covered it as well. So Indigenous media felt it was a story. I think the second part of what you brought up is, did it hijack the day? And I was wondering about this because I think a lot, as you know, about media and reconciliation. And um, I was really interested in what the follow, if any, would be after the 30th. There was actually quite a lot of coverage because I work for CBC. I'll plug CBC a little bit. There was live coverage on CBC. I watched APTN's coverage in the morning. And then I went out and I participated in the day myself. So I didn't see everything, but I thought there was really good coverage and really good connections being made a little bit beyond residential schools. Because while this day is primarily about residential school survivors, it's also about the legacy of colonialism. Do you mind if I read you something? Not at all. It's actually from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because you and I have had this discussion before. But I just want to read this piece of what reconciliation is. And it's short. But it says, reconciliation must support Aboriginal peoples as they heal from the destructive legacies of colonization that have wrecked such havoc on their lives. But it must do even more. Reconciliation must inspire Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples to transform Canadian society so that our children and grandchildren can live together in dignity, peace and prosperity on these lands we now share. The urgent need for reconciliation runs deep in Canada. Expanding public dialogue and action on reconciliation beyond residential schools will be critical in coming years. And this is the part of the TRC that says we're starting with residential schools, but the conclusions of the TRC was that this is not just about residential schools. So I I was pretty pleased to see the discussion go to places like um, drinking water and child welfare, because really the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that day and that coverage, that media coverage should not just only be about residential school survivors, although, you know, in some ways they're, they're veterans to Indigenous people, you know, um, they, they deserve that respect. But it's also about more than that. So I was really wondering what happens on the day after. Would it just kind of be, okay, we had our day and it's silent. And then I did see the story come out and I was saying, is that going to be the only story? And it wasn't. You know, there was a lot of follow on uh, residential schools, there were looks at, you know, compensation that still hasn't been paid out from the Catholic Church. People were digging into water. They were continuing the conversation about child welfare. And all of these things are things that are part of the mandate that was given from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think it's call on media to... You know, it said that media was going to play a big role in whether reconciliation happened or not. It's not for us to advocate for people what what to do, but it's for us to open up these discussions. And I saw that happening. So I don't think that that one story shut down the rest of the conversation. I saw the conversation going, and I was pleased to see that. I'm glad you saw that. And, you know, that was sort of like the fallback position because people were responding to these Trudeau partisans on Twitter saying like, Come on, you got to be kidding me. Of course, the media is going to cover this. And then the position kind of became, yeah, but it overshadowed the real conversation we need to have. I don't necessarily have a problem that they covered it, but they should have also and they should have covered more stories from indigenous people and survivors of residential schools. And of course, that happened, too. 
you know, the Globe and Mail ran a first-person piece, the Toronto Star first-person piece, uh, Canada Land ran a first-person piece. But those stories did not get the same traction. They were not shared as widely and they didn't result in a big Twitter hashtag. I feel like we kind of reached this point of like basic media illiteracy, maybe willful media illiteracy out of partisanship, maybe not. The media is always blamed for like, what's the biggest news story in Canada? This should have been the biggest news story in Canada, not that. And there almost seems to be like an ignorance about like, no, you determine what the biggest story is. We put out a bunch of stories and the public often determines what the biggest one is. The anger towards media, but the ignorant anger was a little bit alarming to me this time around. I think we've actually, did we, Jesse, do you and I agree on something? Oh my God. Stop this segment right now. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. All right, Karen, when things go unduly noted, well, we correct that by duly noting them. Have you something to share with our listeners? Uh, just a bit. A young woman that I have mentioned previously on your show, Natasha Reamer. You'll remember she's the student. She wasn't a journalism student, but she's a child welfare advocate. And she came into APTN and she did a very authentic first person podcast about her relationship with the child welfare system. And yeah, I'll, I'll say like in terms of like, it, it's very authentic. I'll say like she was learning how to read like for the podcast for the first time and stuff. And in the end, she did a really good job. Like it really resonated with a lot of people, even though it's not her profession. I was listening to her. She was on uh, the CBC network and she did a piece on The Current with Cindy Blackstock on September 30th. And I would just encourage people to listen to that 
it's really great to hear a young woman who's come out of the child welfare system be able to speak firsthand so eloquently on what her experiences were and things that we might want to think about as, you know, we're trying to address the flaws that are in that system. So from now on, when you come on this show, we save money because you won't take our money as a CBC employee, but we pay for it in that you're going to plug CBC content. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. On our network. <laughs> that does sound like it's worth people's attention. Duly noted. I just want to duly note, if I may, this Facebook story. I'm not duly noting something that people haven't heard about. You know, this has been one of the worst weeks in ever in Facebook's history. What with this whistleblower pointing out the fact that they – Many facts, but among them that they knew that Instagram is hurting young women and they, they just go ahead anyhow. And also Facebook's influence in non-English speaking countries where they do not do nearly as much as they do elsewhere in terms of moderation, letting terrible things including human trafficking happen. A number of revelations about Facebook. And then there's like a Facebook data leak and then Facebook went offline for hours. Like it was just like a shit show. And their stock tumbled a bit. And uh, everybody knows this. This was the biggest story of the week. And what I want to duly note is that it ain't going to matter. We're just running a cycle again. We do this every year or two. It was the same thing with Cambridge Analytica. Facebook, everybody loves to dump on them. Legislators like to dump on them. Media loves to dump on them. And then we all go back to using Facebook. And the only thing that changes is the Trudeau government's about to pass a bunch of the most restrictive uh, internet laws ever aimed at Facebook, but they'll capture the entire internet. And no one is serious about the obvious. Facebook has too much power. They need to be broken up. Somehow antitrust remains off the table. And I want to duly note that that seems to be the one thing that is not going discussed during Facebook's worst week ever. Hmm. Duly noted. So, Karen, I mean, this is like a consistent and recurring issue, but it's flared up in really, really awful ways lately. And I don't know if we can trace this recent wave of harassment and possibly even harassment campaigns. I don't know if we can trace it back to Maxime Bernier asking his followers to play dirty with members of the media or some very ugly attacks from Israel Levant against Fatima Sayed. But it's been going on and it's like, there's a pattern here. The CBC's Omaira Issa was uh, sharing some of the messages that she got. Two members of our team here have also gotten very similar messages. And the pattern is they are racialized women in journalism. And there's also some commonality in the language of the messages that they have received. And this is something that, like, do you want to lend any oxygen to this stuff? But I also feel like... I feel like it's hard for people to understand, like, okay, you're in the media, toughen up, you get hate mail, you get abusive mail, like, whatever, that's going to happen. I feel like we're not properly getting across just how bad it is. And who cares what I think? One of the journalists targeted, Saba Aitzaz of the Toronto Star, tweeted, I would offer a trigger warning, but I think Canada deserves to be a little uncomfortable right now. And then shared this message, and I, and I will offer a trigger, trigger warning as well. This is awful, what I'm about to, to read. This is something that she received. Regarding metaphors, when a chimp-faced sand N-word, cunt like you, is dragged out to the end zone, a stadium of white men in purple, that's a People's Party of Canada reference, 
A stadium of white men in purple cheer as you're draped in a shit brown burka. Uh, I'm sorry. It goes on and on. And what is described next is a uh, a murder. Uh, uh, this is a death threat. This is a, a, a weird, sick, racist fantasy of this journalist being murdered in front of a crowd. Ironically, you will hear thousands of white civilized Canadian males roar at the justice being served at this metaphorical murder of this journalist. It is beyond disgusting what's happening right now. And there are powerful people cheerleading it on in Bernier and and Ezra Levant. And our news organization has signed on for the first time ever in a joint statement with other news organizations. You know, I was glad that we were invited to lend our name to this. And the message that um, we signed on to from like pretty much all of the major news organizations in Canada and some other independent news uh, went like this. A strong, diverse media is vital for a well-informed democratic society. While criticism is an integral part of journalism and democracy, there can be no tolerance for hate and harassment of journalists or for incitement of attacks on journalists for doing their jobs. That these attacks inordinately target women and racialized journalists speaks to the motivation of the people engaging in this behavior. We're united in supporting our journalists and newsrooms against those who seek to silence their stories and threaten their safety. Together, we will continue to advocate for industry-wide responses to end this behavior and to which journalist Davide Mastracci tweeted, what is the point of this two-paragraph statement that doesn't mention any concrete steps they will take to try to achieve what they want? And that is a fair question. Karen, signing on to that letter of solidarity with other news organizations to, to defend our, our journalists against this is like, it is the bare minimum. Like, it's next to nothing. It's like like literally the least we could do. I still felt it was worth doing, if nothing else, so that my colleagues here know that, like, I'm aware and publicly that the company has their backs. But the prevailing feeling right now is one of frustration and futility and impotence in in the inability of, like, how can we protect our colleagues from this? What can we do? Because this is like they're just doing their jobs, I don't know the first thing, like I've gotten a little hint of something I know you're more familiar with, which is that like, if you're just like reporter is a job and I hire people and send them out to do that job and to have someone whispering in your ear, you're going to die with with the worst racism and and, and sexual violence imagined, expecting them to work under those conditions. Like I'm becoming increasingly uncomfortable asking people to do this work. Yeah. Um, There's a lot there. First of all, I'm I'm glad you spoke about why you signed on to the statement. Like, I mean, statements are important as a first step or as a step. Like, solidarity is always important. I think one of the things that you brought up is you you never know when these things are going to step over into violence. I don't know if you remember this, but it was shortly. God, like, so you started your podcast in 2013? Correct. So I think you interviewed me twice somewhere around that time. And the second time, do you remember me asking if your producer at the time, Katie Jensen, had called APTN to find out where my son lived? Uh, somehow, I've, I've, uh, I don't remember that, no. <laughs> All right, so here's what happened, is one of my reporters got a call from somebody saying that they were Katie Jensen from Canada Land, and they wanted to know if my son lived with me in Winnipeg. Oh, my God. Or if he was still in Ottawa. And I contacted you and Katie and I said, did you guys make this curious call? Because it seems that you would have just asked me and why were you asking? And I I never found out. 
I mean, so, you know, there's those sort of things that happen that really kind of freak you out. And you never know when a comment is being made by somebody who's just whipping it off or whether they're really going to follow up. I was talking to Tiffany last night just before the show as we were just talking about what the topics would be today. And I don't know if you remember this, but after one appearance on your show, I know at least once you were copied on uh, email uh, at my CAJ address Mm -hmm. threatening to rape me. But, you know, of course, they don't just say, I'm going to rape you. They describe what they want to do with you. And it was pretty violent. So I I know that you saw that. Yeah. So I I think there's some statistic that came out of uh, UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, that said 60% of journalists who lost their lives in between 2018-2019 were in countries where there was no conflict. We've seen journalists target during Black Lives Matter. We've sort of seen a buildup of this. So to your point about why is it happening? Part of it is, seems to be these populist movements. Part of it seems to be, you know, journalists who are covering things where police are targeting them. When some of those letters came out, I saw them first because uh, the board at CAJ was monitoring them. Mm-hmm. So I sent them to my direct boss is Alison Broddle. But above her is Kathy Perry, who I've been working closely with because she's training me because I've always only been there like weeks And I sent her a note saying that some of these emails were being received and I thought that CBC reporters might be targeted. And she said, did you receive any? Like, are you okay? And I was like, I didn't receive any. And she said, what did they say? So I just copied it and she was horrified. And so it it went very quickly around CBC management and a decision was made to block the address to keep the emails from coming in. There was talk between the CAJs, this is working on the CAJ on one side about what they might be able to do about this. And you saw the press release come out where they're talking about talking to social media platforms, talking to police, uh, getting people to take this seriously. And I know that in at CBC, Catherine Tate has been already trying to do some of this work where she's been talking to social media platforms and is also part of an international public broadcasters group um, who've made this a priority. So there are things going on. I I was on a free speech panel right before doing the show. And the question of what you do or how you handle it, I don't think we have an answer to. I think we've got like some measures like, you know, and I know that some of them are happening on official levels, like you described, talking to the platforms. I know that CAJ is trying to establish connection with the RCMP because the RCMP just does not give a damn. They, uh, what do you expect us to do? They won't even go check the IP addresses to investigate. Like these, it's illegal to threaten to kill someone. It's illegal to harass someone. Uh, the RCMP is not enforcing the law. They're not protecting journalists as we're trying to do our jobs in this. So you know th- that kind of pressure is something that can be done. The other thing that I want to point out. To this argument that this just comes with the territory, you know, you work in public as a journalist. And I, I believe that if we work in public public as journalists and we have to answer to our audience and we have to stand for criticism of our work and be transparent and all of that. But that somehow turns into this argument that like, yeah, and there's going to be a certain amount of people who cross the line. And that just comes with being a journalist anywhere. Uh-uh. Way worse in Canada, according to people who know. Sarah Haji tweeted, the second I stopped writing primarily for Canadian publications, the level of harassment I received dropped dramatically. Mm. Julie S. Lalonde said, I spoke at a global conference in Vienna a few years ago. 
I was the only Canadian there, and journalists from Egypt, Turkey, Poland, and Ireland were shook by the contents of my inbox. The situation in Canada is dire. Joanna Chu, similar sentiments, and there's data behind this. The Coalition for Women in Journalism has released these stats that in September, Canada proved to be the most hostile digital space for women in the world. And 70% of the women targeted since Bernier's call to play dirty with journalists, 70% of the victims were women of color. So this is a specifically Canadian thing that is not what happens if you happen to be a racialized woman working in journalism elsewhere to the same extent that it happens in Canada. Like, we have a problem in this country with this stuff. You know, it kind of jives with a report that came out last year where it just showed that on some of these sites, I'll just say racist sites, there seemed to be a higher participation of Canadians than other groups. And I I, I sort of of don't know where to go with this conversation beyond that. It's it's a terrible feeling. And, and, you know, to some extent, I know that you've had, it's not quite the same thing, but I know you were shook at a point where you felt like what had happened is uh, as a result of a story that you had done on We, it seemed that a detective had been hired to find out where your kids went to school and if your wife was on the PTA. And I know that shook you up a little bit. And so that's what the feeling's like. You just don't know when you're Mm -hmm. walking down the street if the people who are tweeting at you really mean it and if you're passing by them. Like, did that guy write that tweet? Did that person write that tweet? Am I out in a space where violence is going to be committed against me? If I show up, uh, particularly as a broadcast journalist with a camera, am I going to be safe? And so I think there's this point where some of what was happening with these emails, I think, was a targeted campaign to create fear and, you know, to to do like have a chilling effect. But there's no way to really know if it's real. You just have to wait and see what happens. And it should be taken seriously. It should be taken very seriously. I'm glad you bring up the chill effect of this. I mean, it's very complicated stuff. And, you know, it's entirely possible, like, and given the language that's used and the similarities in 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 the weird, very revealing fantasies that whoever's writing this is projecting, like, it occurred to me, like, this could be one dude. And, like, do you, how much attention and amplification do you want to give to, like, one dude who is unwell and hostile and aggressive or, you know, three or I don't, I don't know, you know, it, but it could be. And how much can they derail, like, you know, to have this big official response across the Canadian media? But it must be taken seriously. It just makes me reflect on, like, how fragile, I guess, the social contract that feeds our work is. Like, We've been trying in recent years to make gains in diversity in journalism, which is to say that, like, I'm not the best person to report certain stories. It makes sense to have a woman from a specific background who has identity rooted and and knowledge of the context of a story. So to say, like, well, this is too dangerous for you to cover this topic, so, you know, we'll get somebody else to cover it, it seems like a huge step backwards, in progress. And like, do you want to let these idiots actually take that from us and dictate how we cover things? But it doesn't take a lot of bad actors to really fuck things up. You know what I mean? Like, what is the balance between ignoring these people, protecting our people, taking it seriously? Like, I don't want, like, you know, you, you let this go and it does end in, in, in real consequences. I don't know. I'm like I'm 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 struggling to to figure out where to leave this because it's 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 getting worse. 
Yeah, I think uh, there, there is uh, an article in the Toronto Star by Sri Hardkar. And Sri is somebody that I read quite a lot. And one of the things that she wrote was that she considers uh, journalists to be the canaries in the coal mine. And that this kind of thing can spill out into other sectors. So it's not really just necessarily a journalism problem. I think she's right. The problem of online hate and online threats, it's serious. And a lot of these, the the thing that I struggle with is a lot of these end-to-end kind of encryption apps were created with the hopes that they'd be used for social good. You know, they could be used to, you know, in countries where people don't have freedoms to have discussions that they couldn't otherwise have. And of course, with everything that you create, you know, like as the engineers always say, it's like, it's not up to me how it's used. So now they're being used in this way and they become these untraceable ways to verbalize hate or also to commit threats. And so beyond journalism, it's a problem that I think, to Shree's point, needs to be dealt with because it's not just going to be journalists. Um, these these kind of threats are going to happen to other people as well. And it's a a bigger problem. That is Shortcuts for this week. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, we're on Twitter at CanadaLand, and I can be emailed to jesse at canadaland.com, and I read everything you send. Karen, where can people find you? Uh, I, I, I will occasionally be back on Twitter. I may go back off again. Thank you for making me go back on for the show. I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you cannot find Karen for a minute. That's okay. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do at Canada Land, uh, we have ad-free versions of our shows and T-shirts and great stuff for you when you go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.